This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. The Zoomer community is a buzz over a real estate report that we saw yesterday. It's from Engel and Volkers. And while the trend that has people talking is accurate, some find the tone and the implications a bit inflammatory. The report says that one of the reasons for the big supply crunch is that baby boomers are not, quote, letting go of their family homes and downsizing or moving into retirement communities. Now, the report rightly points out that this started to be a factor quite a bit before the pandemic, but it's accelerated now because of the carnage in long-term care. And while people have been talking about aging in place for a long time, uh, now they may be acting and preparing for it with renovations to their house instead of that move. So the question is, like, does this explanation feed a very negative intergenerational narrative that holds that Baby boomers are stopping millennials from owning the homes that are rightfully theirs. Just like in previous years, some were blaming baby boomers for blocking their advancement by selfishly staying in their jobs. So what do you think? 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now let's go to Anthony Hitt, who is the CEO of Engel and Volkers Americas. Phil Soper is the president and CEO of Royal LePage. And Steve Jelinek, a sales representative with Chestnut Park Real Estate. Thank you for being with us. Really appreciate it. Let's begin with Anthony Hitt. Anthony, according to your report, how big a factor in what we're experiencing now is the fact that a lot of baby boomers are just staying in place. Well, I think it's certainly part of the... uh, Thanks for inviting me, first of all, Libby. This is an interesting conversation and obviously very timely with everything that's going on in uh, in Canada and the the world. Uh, But it is is definitely one of those contributing factors. Baby boomers boomers own uh, a, a large share of real estate in Canada, as they do in most parts of the world. And uh, they are saying saying set. And uh, the the fact of the reality is that they've got a lot of reasons for for staying set. I mean, the fact is historically they would downsize or they would move into retirement homes. Uh, but uh, the baby boomers of today are not the baby boomers of yesterday. They're healthier, both physically and financially. So they don't necessarily need to make those changes. They've watched what has just happened, as you were talking about. I think your word was the carnage, but the results of what happened in the homes during uh, the. Uh, uh, Retirement homes during the uh, COVID crisis, uh, you know, they, they don't want to go through that. So with that being said, they've got the financial capabilities because their homes have appreciated and they're staying, they're staying set. But I don't think it's fair to say that they're the problem because I also think when it comes to the next generation, the boomers are also a big part of the solution. The boomers are the people who have been uh, gifting those down payments to their, to their children so they can buy in this market and who are doing very well. They are the, the people who are passing those condo properties down to the younger generation so they can start their, their, their situation. So, um, you know, they may be part of the reason that there's a housing shortage, but I don't know that I would call them the problem. Okay, well, I'm glad to to hear that. It's uh, often played that way. Um, Phil Soper, you know, I remember, I'm trying to remember when I first reported on this trend of boomers staying in place, and it was based on a report from your company. And I don't exactly remember, but I think it's got to be like 10 years, maybe. Am I close? Yeah, you know, we've been following Canadian demographic trends for some time. A few things are impacting the uh, housing shortage, the housing shortage crisis we have in uh, Canada right now. The two largest demographics in Canadian history are, number one, the millennials, and number two, the boomers. They're actually pretty close in size. There's just over 9 million boomers and just over 10 million millennials. 
they are the two big forces in Canadian real estate right now. Now, one thing, they don't tend to be looking for the same houses. Uh, millennials are still in the move-up phase of their lives, and uh, baby boomers are looking for something different. Of course, there's overlap. There's always overlap, and there's no one cookie cutter for any generation. But in research we did, uh, Canadian-specific research, in mid-21, uh, we found that 57% of boomers uh, intended to move to a property that was better suited for their stage in life. The kid's finally gone. But they wanted a place that was the same size or larger. So I think the subtle message here is not that they're just, you know, with their fingernails hanging on to their place. They're readjusting for this stage of life. We have to remember that kids left home later. So millennials took around. And sometimes they're coming back. Yeah. Yeah. And they keep coming back. And boomers are are working longer than their uh, parents or grandparents uh, did. And they have the money. They've worked their whole life. So if they're active and working or even just active, they obviously have the right to live in whatever kind of uh, property they wish to and can afford. So it's it's a bit of a, um, a cheap shot that I don't think too many people will buy into, the, the blaming boomers for the shortage of housing in this country. Well, that lands uh, squarely on the shoulders of our um, policymakers, our politicians and such. Uh, It's interesting, you know, maybe it is, I will say that there are some uh, real estate writers who kind of uh, push this kind of narrative. I'm going to bring in uh, Steve Jelinek. And uh, Steve, you're a millennial, right? Am I right? Steve? Yep. Yep. I I am a millennial. And uh, are your clients in about the same age bracket as you? Uh, so I work with a wide variety of uh, clientele, so the age demographic does shift, but I do feel like because I, I work with millennials and boomers, um, I do see different tendencies in terms of the buyer activity and uh, the way people approach the market today. And uh, in your experience, I know that it, I mean, my heart goes out to younger people trying to buy a home, because even if they're successful and they make great money, just the appreciation, how do you accumulate that kind of a down payment unless your boomer parents are going to spot you some? Uh, and uh, the competition is, is it's like, wow, wild. So, but do you find that people in that age bracket thinks all oh, these, um, I, I find it's more kind of a, a resentment. It's like, we had it so easy when we were buying our homes, they were so cheap, uh, and that kind of thing. Do you do you find that among your clients? Well, I, I feel as though the difference in the demographic approach, I think it's a bit of a, a naive approach that my generation takes, the millennials, because we haven't seen 10% interest rates. We haven't seen a market correction such as happened in 1989. So we haven't lived through those experiences, whereas Boomers have. So they've got a little bit more of a cautious approach on the real estate market, I find. And it's very difficult to compete against 25 people for a house if you've lived through those experiences. So I do feel that there is a, a, a big gap between the approach. And, uh, and I do feel as though some of the houses that are uh, suited to uh, downsizers, such as bungalows and such, uh, young families are also trying to snatch up. So there's a, there, there is a little bit of an overlap in certain parts of the market, but uh, I, I do see uh, the lines crossing and the approaches a lot of the time can vary by well, each generation. Well, yeah, I, I do uh, get or sense just that kind of resentment. Uh, uh, just to talk about my own experience, my husband and I bought our first home together at the very height of the real estate market. And then when it crashed, we made a decision. We took a big loss and we bought a house uh, that we would never have been able to afford that was in very bad shape. And, you know, after probably 25 years of renovations, it's perfect. <laughs> so. and, and that's one of the things. Renovations are very challenging these days. Yeah, um, everything. So even, even on rental properties that I have, I have a lot of people coming trying to look for six to eight months 
with the flexibility to uh, go further on the lease term because they're renovating their house. And, and you can't live through it because if you have contractors in all the time, there's dust, COVID's a, an issue. So I, I really feel for the boomers that do want to downsize because it's very, very challenging. And I, I actually don't blame them for holding on to their, their real estate and adjusting with the current day. Well, yeah. Uh, tell me about it. And again, you know, back when we did our first renovation, it was like the the bottom of the recession and people were desperate to work. And mm-hmm. now, I mean, we, we, we just had to fix up a driveway and to go through to get, <laughs> you know, people to work is difficult. But let's get back. To, oh, and the phone lines are, are uh, let's get back to our real estate experts. Anthony Hitt, you're calling from New York City. And I think part of the issue is, uh, you know, that what has happened recently here in Toronto happened in New York City and in London a long time ago. And it's a matter of expectations because younger people where you are living wouldn't have expected to have an easy time getting into the market. Am I right? I think it, it definitely is one of those situations that depending on where you're at, your perspectives are going to be different. You're absolutely right. What happened in London, what happened in New York City is probably going to happen with the demand that we're seeing on the on the GTA. I, I think what we're looking at is I, I, I was just seeing in, in our research that by 2046, Ontario is expecting to move uh, the, the city of Toronto to move from 3 million folks to uh, 4 million folks. And about 81 percent of the population growth in Ontario is going to happen in Toronto. You know, that's that's a challenge if you're wanting to buy at any age. Yeah, uh, Phil Soper. I mean, we're hearing that the supply shortage is terrible, and and that's expected to continue. I mean, again, those of us who have lived through a crash, and at that time, a lot of people walked away from their houses because they were worth less than the mortgage. Um, it, you know, I was saying, you know, what comes up must come down, but it doesn't seem to. Yeah, and if you if you look over the longer term, it's actually very rare in Canada for home prices to to seed, you can find it in a neighborhood or a, a city. Uh, and we've had we've had cities uh, with dips um, over the past decade. I, I did let you think it's it's worth noting though that our young people really leapt at the opportunity to get into home ownership in twenty twenty. The numbers from Statistics Canada aren't, haven't completely reviewed, uh, revealed themselves, but I believe later this year, when we have the full homeownership statistics in the country, we'll be very, very close, if not at 70% uh, of people owning their homes. And the big leap forward was among the millennial class. What happened in 2020 when the the market or the economy was artificially shut down to keep each other safe in the early spring, younger people who, if you recall back then, felt a lot safer about uh, interacting in society than older people did. This was pre-vaccination, pre-vaccines. And investors lost their clients. So people who owned uh, places that were renting to foreign students, other students, uh, people in travel, tourism, entertainment. So the investors bailed from the market and our millennials rushed in. And there was, for a brief period of time, call it six weeks in the spring of 2020, prices were down. Competition disappeared and the, the homes were being snapped up uh, by our youth. So we saw the home ownership rate among people 25 to 35 uh, leap forward during that time period. And now they're, quote unquote, in the club. Uh, they are homeowners. They'll remain homeowners for the rest of their, their lives. And they've ridden a wave of, of appreciation. So we shouldn't feel too sorry for them. Uh, well, uh, yeah, but I... Canada's like a full 5% higher than the United States. So it's not like we're, we're doing poorly in finding homes for any generation. Well, uh, I, I would imagine that a lot of that is in, in condos because, uh, I, it's hard Absolutely. to imagine with the prices. They're not buying detached houses in central Toronto. Steve? Yeah. And, and remember, in 2020, condominiums, uh, and detached homes were much cheaper than they are as we entered the spring market of 2022. We've had, we've had a 
well, a, a really uncomfortable leap forward in the cost of, of housing, particularly over the last, last 12 months. And it is, you know, your core question on supply, it is an issue. One, one housing area of the United States does better than Canada. And in fact, all of the advanced nations on earth do better than Canada is in buildings or homes per capita. We're last place. We're first place in growth. Number one, fastest growing advanced nation in the world, ahead of Australia. And uh, we're last place in terms of homes per capita. Scotia Economics estimates we're short 1.8 million homes in this country. Wow. So the real fix is a continued focus on reducing uh, the challenges of building building new homes, the cost of building new homes, taking risk off developers, uh, and streamlining that that process. Uh, and we had a good 2021. It was uh, it was a record year for building, but that's just one year. We've got to treat this like healthcare or education. It's a long term social challenge uh, that all levels of government need to focus on. Uh, Steve Jelinek, what do you tell your younger clients as they embark on this process in such a difficult market? Well, I, I mean, it definitely takes, um, well, first off, I just tell them to buckle up because it is a bit of a roller coaster ride, uh, depending on the market that you're trying to get into. I work downtown Toronto, central Toronto, West End. So it is very competitive, and there is a difference between your approach to purchasing a condo versus your approach to purchasing a freehold property, whether it's a uh, detached, semi, bungalow. Um, there are different approaches you have to take, but it does take a lot of um, uh, preparing and getting them, getting their mind around the challenges that they're going to face. And uh, it's also about letting them know, don't burn yourself out in the market, because uh, if, if you don't take a well-coordinated approach, you can hit that wall where it begins to affect other parts of your life. So it, it is a real roller coaster ride, um, but you also have to make sure that people keep their wits about them and that they're operating within the sandbox of the market. And you, you can't get too carried away because what can happen to any demographic is that people get tapped out, they want the house, and they just pay an exorbitant amount of money to get the search over with. So you got to keep people... Um, in line, realistic expectations, and on the right path. Uh, Anthony Hitt, uh, before we let you go, do you foresee this as a growing trend that baby boomers more and more will embrace this idea of aging in place and hang on to their homes? Absolutely. I don't think we're going to see anything changing. I said earlier that you know the baby boomers are healthier, both physically and financially right now. Their investments have done well for them. We can see the trend that they are planning to renovate, as difficult as that may be in, in current days. They're hiring help to, uh, to keep them in place. Uh, and services that have been created all over Canada uh, make it easier. Uh, everything they need, the social services, the health services, are usually within you know, close proximity. Uh, that being said, while they may control that market, and there's no doubt that there is a huge shortage of, uh, of inventory uh, throughout the uh, Canadian market, I, I do think some good news for the millennials. Our luxury home sale report that we just put out, uh, you know, basically says that the real drivers of the market will be the millennials and the Gen Xers going forward. They're going to represent 80% of luxury home sellers uh, in the next year, and that's because they do want to stay close to those baby boomers. They want to stay close to their family, and they want to live the lifestyle that uh, they're expecting to live in this day and age. So I think there's good news on all sides, but it is going to be as, as Steve said. We're probably all going to have to buckle up for a while. This is this is the way it's going to be because there is no real end in sight to this huge crisis level inventory shortage. Okay, Anthony Hitt, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for inviting me. Okay, and uh, we're going to continue with uh, Steve and Phil, and uh, we'll take a couple of calls first. Sita, hi, Sita. Hi, Nibby. How are you? Fine. Go ahead. Thanks. It's not anyone's business what we do with our house we work so hard for. The problems are blame the realtors whom helped jack up the price of homes with, with price war. It's also a population growth. Need to, they need to build more homes and live in space. Where are we going to live if we sell or don't size? Thanks. 
Okay, where that's that's the thing. And you know what? You're you're selling and buying into the same market. The the only way that math works out is if you're going to move to a cheaper market or um I, I don't even know how much it works out. You know, if you move to a condominium, uh then you have all these extra expenses, maintenance and all of that. And now uh, I want to bring in our own demographic guru, David Kravit, who is the vice president of membership with CARP. And David, watching this, I, what's your take? Is I mean, you know, honestly, I think possibly the way this report was uh, reported was slightly inflammatory. But do you get that kind of uh, resentment where, again, younger people blame older people for their inability to get what they want. I, I do, and I think that there's some resentment going the other way, too, because uh, the baby boomers, certainly CARP members, and we just had a, a, I just participated in a focus group on this yesterday, are very aware of being blamed for this. And so why is it my responsibility? Why is the housing supply my responsibility? Uh, as a generation, I have certain needs, and I think uh, Anthony Hitt that you just spoke to talked about the continuing trend of aging in place. There's nothing that can stop that whatsoever. And baby boomers uh, and seniors older than baby boomers want to uh, uh, live in place, as we call it a carp, or age in place. They are very apprehensive about nursing homes for obvious reasons, but even retirement homes. And the retirement, uh, this hasn't been talked about, the retirement uh, home industry, whether it's, you know, high-end seniors' apartments and so on, they're going through changes because they're discovering that they can't attract enough um, residents without putting in many more amenities and features than they had before. They've come through a bad couple of years because of COVID, so vacancy rates have been very high in seniors' housing. And, um, people don't want to move into any kind of a big building or an institutional setting, whether it's a retirement home or a nursing home. Um, so now you're seeing the emergence of these adult lifestyle communities loaded with features and amenities, including uh, high tech. Many developers are building medical centers right there to attract those people. So that's a whole change in that industry. There's a multi-billion dollar age tech, aging in place technology, which I think uh, Mr. Hitt referred to, that there's many more services and facilities available. And just one little factoid I'll just mention quickly, Libby, and then I'll, uh, I'm done, is that uh, in 2011, uh, um, 104,000 Canadians over the age of 65 had an office in their home, a home office in 2011. Now, 10 years later, 691,000 wow. have an office in their home. So they've already done stuff to their home to run that side business, that side hustle, that self-employment. They're, they're already fixing up these homes so that they can stay there for the duration. I think that's, and, that's, know, that's a big factor that people are realizing that if you want to age in place, you better prepare for it yes. while you still can. You've got to get those renovations done, you know, when you're not in a wheelchair. Exactly. And, and, and CARP is running many successful seminars and webinars and conferences and, you know, education programs for our members who are grabbing with both hands every morsel of information we can give them as to what are the services, what are the facilities, how do you go about it, how do you plan it. This is a permanent trend, and it will cause more and more baby boomers. The, the word isn't hang on to their homes. The word is, uh, I want to use this space to uh, live those years uh, independently, if I can. Okay, I want to take a call from Mo and Markham. Hi, Mo. Hi there, Libby. How are you today? Fine. Go ahead, Mo. You're on the air. First time caller. Oh, wait. There Sorry. you go. Welcome. Well, the first point about the millennials, they have to go smell the coffee. The first thing you have to do in order to get a house is to be financially fit. You must have the financial capacity to pay for the home long term. I had my first home in 1972 when I just arrived here as a new immigrant, so 50 wow. years ago. Wow, yes. Yeah. And uh, 10 years later, well, the interest rate at that time was 12%. But because I was 
I had the financial capacity to buy the home, I bought, bought the home. So I had to qualify first thing. Secondly, in 1982, 81, 82, the, the interest rate went up to 22%. I know, it was nuts. So how did I, how did I manage? Well, I sold the first home and got into the second home, but I still had the financial capacity to own the home. So nobody has a God-given right to have a home. They have the God-given right to financially be fit to buy a home first. In nineteen, in two thousand and eight and two thousand and nine, with the collapse in the in the United States of the home, it was because of the the burden on people who had homes and did not have the wherewithal to pay for it. Absolutely, Mo. Let me ask you this: Are you planning on staying in your home? Listen, I will give you a better joke. Okay, we're running out of time, so hopefully a quick joke, Mo. Yeah, all what the guy said about re- I'm repairing right now. I have a guy looking after the re- repairing of the home. I am totally in alignment with all the other baby boomers, and I'm in defense of them to keep their home and enjoy their home because we are living l- longer. We are re- probably um, more healthy than, than any other generation before. So why not enjoy your home? Exactly. So, and the other thing I want to know, I want to let the, the public know that when the market corrects in a few months or maybe a year or so, the baby bo- the millennials will have the opportunity if they save the money and be able to jump on the market. So let them have some patience because we, the baby boomers, had patience. We had discipline. We had compassion for them. My younger kids, they bought their home. My kids bought their home before they were married. Okay, Mo, I've got to let you go. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Okay, thanks, Mo. Okay, uh, I'm going to give everybody 20 seconds to wrap things up, starting with Phil Soper. Yeah, I think the first thing we should realize is that that, uh, that American court from England Boker was American. Canadian yeah. research shows boomers aren't talking about leaving their homes and going into a, a retirement home. More than half, 57%, say they will purchase a detached home and a larger home. Only 19%, one in five, are are downsizing. The second part is they are a generous generous generation. We've got a trillion dollars of wealth changing generations over the next decade. 25% of boomers are going to help their millennial kids buy a home. David. 20 seconds. I, I, I agree with Phil very much that the um, aging in place is here. The boomers want to maximize the value of their existing home. And as a generation, we're not excited about shouldering the burden for what our um, planners and building permit issuers have failed to do. Uh, Steve Jelinek, a last 20 seconds to you. Okay. Well, I, I would say there's a lot of polarization in our market on in all angles. So to prevent yourself from being caught in a position where you're blaming a different generation or a different person for, for uh, your challenges in the real estate market, I would just say plan. If you need to do renovations, get quotes. If you need to move, look at what prices are in different areas, plan accordingly, and, and you, should, uh, you should be left out of the polarization conversation. Okay, well, that's good advice. Thank you all, Steve Jelinek, David Kravitz, and Phil Soper. Thanks, Libby. My pleasure. Bye. Thanks My for having pleasure. me. Great talking to you. Bye. Uh, I think that's a conversation we're going to have to continue. If you couldn't get through, Free For All Friday is coming up tomorrow. Now we're going to take a break. When we come back, oh, there's a new sub-variant, and we are going to get some information on that when we return. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. The prospect of yet another COVID variant is beyond unsettling, especially as we are being told that we're likely on the downward trend with Omicron. But here it is, nonetheless. 
And it's apparently not a full-blown variant. It's being called a sub-variant by the name of BA2. And as of yesterday, there were 51 cases in Canada, as usual, mostly coming from international travelers. If you have questions, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. I have a lot of questions, and uh, I am turning to Dr. Peter Uni, Scientific Director of the Province's COVID-19 Science Advisory Table. Dr. Uni, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me again. Hi. Hi. Uh, so what do we know about this variant? Uh, so far, only 51 cases, but that seems it always starts with a small number. Yeah, it does indeed. Uh, it's not entirely clear yet. So we've carefully monitored that so far. And uh, luckily, we haven't seen this you know, start to grow as we could expect it when uh, looking at Denmark and that growth curve in Germany, but it hasn't happened so far. So there is this, this subvariant BA2 has a bit of an advantage, probably about you know 20% um, more capacity to spread compared with the regular Omicron. That's right, um, which is very contagious. Uh, which is which is again a bit. It, it means you know basically what for all we know right now, um, if we have let's say an uh, an uh, base uh, sorry an effective reproduction number of zero point eight, that's probably what we have right now. Meaning, one hundred cases right now only call only in inverted commas of course cause only about eighty cases subsequently. We would need to multiply this 0.8 with uh, with roughly 1.2, and then you know this means we are closer to just uh, constant case counts day by day because the R effective then is around one, and that's probably what we will would see if uh, this were to take over, and it could well be in the future. So the conclusions are always the same: take it slow right now, and the other one is go really fast regarding your third dose. If you haven't had your third dose, for heaven's sake, get it now. If you haven't been vaccinated, get vaccinated now. Because what we know is, you know, from data, from international data, for example, considering, for instance, our deaths, deaths that we have in the province right now, they go up. People with three doses of the vaccine are 40 to 50 times less likely to die compared to people who haven't been vaccinated yet. That's the reality. So it's always the same story. Just get vaccinated, and that brings us to a completely different space. Uh, what makes it a subvariant as opposed to a variant? Oh, it's um, basically sharing um, in the spike protein, for example, I think 20 or 21 um, mutations, a lot of mutations. And then there's um, some mutations around 10 that it doesn't share, but it has others. So it's uh, it's basically a really a very close relative, and it's uh, it's basically like uh, sisters, brothers, and sisters. Uh, now the scary thing uh, you mentioned, Denmark, that it now comprises over half the cases there, and yeah. apparently uh, that's happened pretty quickly. Exactly, it can happen relatively quickly again. So far, it hasn't happened here. Last time I checked was this morning. Um, the point is also just to understand it. We don't have right now any evidence that it's more severe than Omicron. So it's more contagious, yes, um, or it has an advantage. We don't know actually it's the advantage because it even, you know, further evades the immune system a bit or because of uh, <clears throat> intrinsically just a bit more transmissibility, we'll find out. But the conclusions don't change. <clears throat> what we need to do right now really is make sure that we have, again, an increased speed on third doses. We have slowed down tremendously, which is a, which is a real pity. It really worries me. You know, we're only at around 400 third doses per week. This is miserable for Ontario. We can do much better, and that's what we need to do now. Again, you know, go up to hopefully roughly 1 million third doses per week. Um, you're saying that we don't know if it's more severe, but if there are so many cases in Denmark and in Germany, what what what's happening there? In, in terms of that, and in the UK? So, I mean, in Germany, they don't have that many cases yet, but in Denmark, indeed, what we see there is anyway a different behavior that at least I, but also my colleagues, we don't fully understand. So in Denmark, 
there um, people in the ICU per uh, 1 million inhabitants is considerably lower um, than ours. And uh, we don't know exactly what's happening. Do they have better drug supply? Is it just that they're really so much better underway health-wisely, you know, because uh, there's no obesity, etc. We don't know exactly. But the point is, we don't have any evidence to suggest that it's getting more severe. And, you know, what we need to do here is just, irrespective of what's coming, keeping in mind that now is the time that new variants are coming, we just need to ride out this wave and make sure that everybody has as optimal an immunity as they can possibly get. And uh, for most of us, of course, it will be vaccination. But uh, the other part is that once people have had, you know, an infection with Omicron or also BA2, they start to re-recognize the virus when it's coming back later and they're then a bit protected against serious outcomes and that's where we want to go. Okay. Dr. Peter Uni, thank you so much for that. Appreciate it. You're very welcome. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. We're going to take another break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about the growing tensions in Ukraine and the big announcement from Ottawa last week about the additional aid we're sending, which is not exactly what they were asking for. We'll have that when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Yesterday, the Trudeau government announced the latest round of aid to Ukraine. Ottawa will provide intelligence and cyber defensive support, as well as extending our military training mission there for an additional three years. After considering Ukraine's request for weapons, the Prime Minister emphasized that what we are providing is, quote, non-lethal aid. And Trudeau's news yesterday came hours after the U.S. rejected Moscow's demands that NATO bar Ukraine from future membership and reduce military presence in nearby countries. Uh, so uh, today we're hearing them saying there's still a chance for a diplomatic solution, but uh, it's hard to see the two sides coming any closer. The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Now, Canada has the largest Ukrainian diaspora in the world, and we are going to check in with Peter Sturin, president of the Ukrainian-Canadian Conference. Congress, Toronto branch, and Dr. Maria Popova, associate professor in the Department of Political Science at McGill University and the Jean Monnet Chair. Welcome, both of you, and thank you for being with us. Good afternoon. Thank you for having me. Let us begin with Peter Sturin. What is your reaction to what Ottawa is offering? Well, we uh, we are uh, encouraged that the uh, uh, there still is ongoing support, but we are profoundly disappointed that uh, Canada has not uh, acted this in the same way as uh, other allies have, such as UK, US, Baltic states, Poland, that are actually providing defensive weapons to Ukraine uh, prior to any uh, further conflict moving forward. And Ukraine's been in that situation where, where, you, where Russia has been waging war on the Eastern Front for the last eight years. Um, so um, uh, we're going to continue to to request the government to do more, uh, such as uh, the other the other uh, allies have done. Dr. Popova, why do you think that uh, our government made this decision? It might be because uh, Canada is sort of trying to play a good cop to uh, the U.S.'s bad cop. I mean, the the reality is we don't really know. Uh, what is going to deter Russia and de-escalate this situation? Is it going to be more diplomacy or is it going to be uh, arming Ukraine? Uh, it is still possible that diplomacy would do the trick. And the reason for that is that, in fact, Russia doesn't have a very good and clear winning strategy uh, by invading. Uh, if they invade further, they will just have a very difficult task on their hands, a very bloody conflict, and they will have to militarily occupy uh, Ukraine, which will resist very, very strongly. The Russians know this, so there is a chance of uh, deterrence. 
Peter Sturen, uh, I, I'm assuming that you and many people uh, in your organization, your community, have family there, have friends there, you're in close touch. What are they telling you about what everyday life is like? Well, normal everyday life is still ongoing. People are still go about their business and everything, but there's obviously this, this palpable sense of... Uh, of what can actually happen next. I mean, eight years ago, no one would have predicted that Russia would come and take a large swath of land like Crimea and and the good part of eastern Ukraine through uh, by by sending in their military. Um, so uh, the the reality is is Russia is very unpredictable, and unfortunately, history shows us that uh, they are more than willing to uh, to to get involved physically and do great harm uh, to their neighbors. Uh, Dr. Popova, what do you think their end game is? I mean, Vladimir Putin is described as a bully, but not reckless. I mean, uh, experts that I've talked to think he is taking a calculated risk. I mean, that's precisely the question here. Uh, it, It doesn't seem that they have a very good uh, strategy uh, towards actually occupying the rest of Ukraine. The parts that they already took, uh, they were e- the easiest parts to take. Any other inch of territory will be very hard to take from Ukraine. So it is possible that uh, Putin's end game here is to use this threat, because of course, yes, indeed, everybody knows that Russia might invade. To use this threat in order to try to get some concessions. He hasn't gotten uh, any concessions so far, which is uh, fair because those are uh, those demands are not uh, uh, not reasonable. Uh, but uh, he might be uh, simply continuing this um, these threats to, to try uh, to keep pushing for some sort of concessions. Peter Sturen, uh, do you agree that the reasoning behind Canada's refusal to send weapons is that we're trying to play good cop? Um, I, I don't know how much clout we have. And uh, what do you think of that? Well, there's, um, there's certainly a sensitivity to it. Uh, there's no doubt whenever you talk about, you know, giving someone weapons, that the kind of weapons that, that uh, Ukraine has been getting from the other allies, like even the Baltic states and Poland, uh, they are defensive weapons. Uh, they're anti-tank missile systems. They're anti-aircraft. Um, so th- these these weapons cannot be used to attack, but simply just to defend. Um, but uh, but certainly uh, we understand that there is some trepidation. I-, I don't know if Canada's trying to play good cop, but um, you know we have a, a latest poll that came out yesterday that the majority of Canadians are supportive of uh, Canada doing more and assisting, because they realize, I believe, that uh, it has much more greater implications. I mean, effectively, if this was full-out war, it would be a war in Europe. Ukraine is part of Europe. Um, Pretty dramatic and pretty frightening, not just to that part of the world, but for the whole world, really. Uh, And does it surprise you? uh, I mean, Deputy Prime Minister Christian Freeland is a Ukrainian-Canadian and uh, a big supporter of of Ukraine. Uh, Does it surprise you that uh, this is where they landed on? Well, um, we do know uh, one major party, uh, the NDP, uh, has been speaking out against providing uh, uh, military aid to Ukraine. So we have a minority government right now. Um, so that might be all playing into the politi- politics of the situation. Um, who knows, that may be just the situation right now. If things continue to escalate, and, and, and I agree with the professor, it does, there, there seems to be some kind of brinkmanship going, out, going on, but we know Mr. Putin and, and his forces uh, are, very, uh, are not willing to step back very quickly, and we see with the, with the actions that they took in Kazakhstan, and with the recent uh, issues they had there, I mean, um, they they tend to move very quickly. So we'll we will just have to wait and see how all of this develops, and uh, we're all praying for for a peaceful end, of course.
Well, uh, there were some very disturbing reports last weekend, uh, Dr. Popova out of Britain, that Putin was trying to install a a puppet, basically a uh, pro-Russian puppet. And he was uh, in league with Belarus, where they already have someone like that. Uh, What kind of uh, credence do you think those reports have? Um, Actually, this, uh, this report specifically is uh, interesting because as soon as uh, the UK announced uh, the name of the actual uh, puppet, uh, that pro-Russian Ukrainian politician jumped immediately and said that under no circumstances would he play this role, Uh, that even though he supports uh, pro-Russian cultural policies and good relationship with Russia, he would not actually... Uh, support uh, Ukraine u- losing its sovereignty to Russia. And this serves to underscore the point that it will be very difficult for Russia to actually take Ukraine. Uh, installing a puppet is virtually impossible. This puppet will not be able to govern uh, Ukraine. And uh, the question here is more, do the Russians realize this or not? Because it is possible that some... Um, figures within uh, the Kremlin believe that against evidence that a puppet might be able to govern. Well, there were there were a number of people on that list. Uh, how uh, strong do you think uh, uh, Volodymyr Zelensky is? Do you think he can hang in? He is not very strong domestically, but all of his challengers, all of his credible challengers are actually even less pro-Russian than he is, even more um, strong on Ukrainian national sovereignty. So that's why it doesn't seem at all realistic for Russia to be able to just put a puppet there and leave. They will have to occupy the country militarily, and this will not be easy. Peter Sturin, uh, does the Canadian-Ukrainian community uh, support uh, Zelensky? Uh, do they think highly of him? Well, there's, there, as in you know, any kind of uh, uh, democracy, you have uh, people that are for and people that are against any given leader at any given time. Um, I think there was a lot of trepidation at first. Uh, I mean, you know, he obviously didn't have any political experience uh, being an actor, comedian, uh, but, um, you know, uh, he is the president, duly elected. He got 72% of the popular vote. Um, latest polls show that he still has maintains a certain amount of popularity. Um, and, um, you know, a lot of his uh, 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 words recently have been what we believe that the president should be doing and saying and standing up uh, to Russia and standing up against any further aggression. So um, uh, we we hope that he continues to do uh, what is right for the country and for all the people. Uh, Dr. Popova, does there have to be some kind of uh, exit where Putin saves face? I mean, if uh, the, the West has just told him, uh, you know, don't you dare, and we are not giving in to any of your demands, so... Uh, Presumably, uh, if he wants to uh, stand down, how does he do that? That's a very good question. Um, It seems to me that the most likely uh, scenario for him to stand down is actually to maybe recognize the separatist uh, regions in eastern Ukraine, uh, the LNR and DNR. And just say, well, these, we, Russia now recognizes these countries as independent countries. That would move them sort of up uh, a step in the international system. Or maybe he could even uh, go for annexing uh, this territory. And uh, this is, of course, this will allow him domestically um, uh, to save face. Yeah, I don't think the Ukrainians would be too happy about that, Peter. Oh, uh, no, absolutely not. I mean, uh, you know, where does it end? Um, you know, the, you, you may want to take one part, and I'll just, uh, one thing I'll disagree with it, uh, there was no separatist movement prior to 2014 when Russia actually did have a, a puppet president in power that the people 
rejected and overthrew. Um, and, and, and then all of a sudden, lo and behold, there's some kind of separatist movement in a part of country where, where there was never any opposition. I mean, I have direct family in that area. Most of them are actually Russian-speaking, but they never, ever had any pretenses of wanting to. And in fact, what's happened is it's displaced an awful lot of people that were in that area that wanted to be part of Ukraine, left that area because it became Russian-controlled. And uh, so, you know, the, 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 uh, the thought of just giving up a huge swath of land just because they came in um, is it, it, very frightening to us. So where does one draw the line? Is, is, this, is it Putin that decides? Well, you or, know, or it, you... sorry. sorry. Uh, you know, it's interesting that Dr. Popova uh, brought that up because uh, some of the other experts I've talked to have said that might be his end game is, uh, is, is uh, keeping his hold on Crimea. Anyway, let well, us take a quick call from Keith in Oshawa. Hi, Keith. Hi, Larry. Thank you for taking my call. I would just like to say I wish our useless prime minister would get off his fence-setting backside and give the Ukrainian people whatever we have in the way of weapons to keep these people from taking over or coming into their country. If they give up one democracy over there, what's going to happen next? Okay, Keith, I think we know where you stand. Uh, we're um, basically out of time, so we're going to wrap things up. Uh, starting with Dr. Popova, what would you like to leave us with on this? I'll just emphasize that for sure uh, there was no separatist movement initially, and this was created uh, by Russia. Uh, but right now, Ukraine does not control these territories at all. So if we end up with uh, Ukraine losing these territories on paper as well, I think it's much preferable than a full-on invasion of the country, which will be very, very bloody. Peter Sturin, what would you like to leave us with? Well, um, I, I think that uh, there's, the aggression will continue, unfortunately. Um, and I don't imagine anything other than full capitulation on the side of Ukraine would satisfy Mr. Putin. Um, so it's really uh, up to him to decide where where all this ends, because Ukraine obviously is not doing anything whatsoever to create any issue. Uh, they want to move on like everyone else and just be part and have their own liberal democracy like they have in the rest of Europe. So I hope the Canadians continue to stand with Ukraine, and uh, we will pray for the best. Okay, thank you so much, Peter Sturin and Dr. Maria Popova. Appreciate your time. Thank Thank you. That's all the time we have for today. Free for All Friday is coming up tomorrow, and there will be a lot to talk about. So especially if you couldn't get through, and if you have anything to add, call us back then. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads. Idea City on the air and The Garden Show.